Last Sunday, we considered one very important aspect of our relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We saw that just as all, we all fell from grace and became children of wrath because of our union with Adam, so also our union with Christ restores us to grace and makes us adopted sons of God. We saw that we're naturally united to Adam as our representative, whether we like it or not. We can't help that. But since we're nat not naturally united to our Lord, he is not necessarily our representative before God. We have to be supernaturally united to our Lord to be restored to grace and become the adopted children of God. Because Jesus Christ, and only Jesus Christ, is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. And just a few weeks ago, we saw precisely how it is that we become supernaturally united with our Lord. We considered the exact method established by our Lord Himself for uniting our souls to Him when we studied the sacrament of baptism. We studied the effects of baptism, and we saw that besides washing away original and actual sin, besides washing away all the punishment due to sin, besides filling the newly baptized soul with sanctifying grace, besides marking that soul with a permanent spiritual character, besides opening the gates of heaven for the newly baptized man, besides all that, we saw that supernatural virtues, these powers were poured into the soul of the newly baptized man precisely because he becomes united to Christ. The soul of a baptized man becomes united to Christ by virtue of baptism. So over the past few weeks, we've considered the absolute necessity of our Lord's role as our representative before God as a mediator before God and man. And we've seen that by our baptism, we've entered into that relationship with him so that he becomes our representative before God. Now today, we'll consider another way in which Christ represents us before God. And that's by a circumcision. Now to our way of thinking, that might seem like a funny thing to talk about, let alone to have a feast for. But to the degree that we think that way, to that very degree, we're not thinking with the church. Since she's made this one of the greatest feasts, and traditionally it's been a Holy Day obligation, which will start again next year. So since this is usually a Holy Day obligation, since the church does ask us to think about it, let's take a few minutes this morning to see why it's so important. To do that, we'll take a real quick look at three things we've all studied here before. The significance of blood, circumcision in the Old Testament, and our Lord's circumcision, and then we'll see how that all applies to us. Okay, part one, the significance of blood. We've asked ourselves this question before. What's the big deal with blood? Now men from all, literally all over the world, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, Norway, Germanic tribes, Australia, the Pacific Islands, South America, Mexico, Africa, the Middle East, right here in the Indians of the Great Plains, men from literally all over the world have shared a common view. They've seen blood as life. And so they've seen the offering of blood as the offering of life. And also all over the world, men have had the custom of becoming blood brothers. 
That means they perform ceremonies in which they share each other's blood. I've seen it myself. What's the underlying idea here? Since blood is life, and since they've shared each other's blood, well then the idea is they have a share in each other's life. They have a common life. So men have traditionally seen their blood brothers as being literally, literally more closely related to them than their own birth brothers. Not only have men had the same basic idea of becoming blood brothers with other men from different families or nations, but they've also had the idea that they could establish a blood covenant relationship with their God. How? By offering them blood. That's why when a Satan worshiper sells his soul to the devil, he signs a compact in his own blood. He's pledging his life by means of this bloody signature to be bound forever to the demonic life of Satan in exchange for certain worldly things. That's a dramatic case, but that's an example. These ideas are found in every nation and culture. But similar beliefs about the significance of blood and about these blood covenants are also found literally scattered from the end of the beginning of the Bible to the end. Now that raises a question. Just how do men scattered all over the world from every tribe and nation get the same general beliefs about blood as those taught by Scripture? The fathers of the church teach that when we find men everywhere have similar beliefs or customs or teachings, customs that are similar to those found in Holy Scriptures, the reason for this similarity is that after men were scattered all over the world from the Tower of Babel, they didn't forget all the teachings that had been handed down from Adam. In other words, the basic idea of blood of life and the basic idea of blood covenanting came down with men from Adam and they wasn't completely lost after men were scattered following the incident at the Tower of Babel. That explains the similarities, but what about the differences? The fathers teach that the differences are a result of corruption by both men and devils. Except, of course, in one case, the case of the people of Israel who are preserved from teaching error by a special grace of God. All this is part of God's providential plan so that men would find it easier later on to understand the true faith when they became evangelized. Now let's turn to the Bible. Right from the beginning, we see that blood is offered up to God in reparation for sin. We studied this when we talked about the precious blood. Today, the basic idea we want to take from the inspired word of God is that found in Hebrews 9.22. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. There's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. So, what's the significance of blood? We've seen from both the traditions of mankind as well as from the inerrant word of God that blood stands for life, that blood can be offered up as a substitution for life, the sharing of blood is a sharing of life, whether with man or even with the gods, they've seen that, and there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Part two, circumcision in the Old Testament. We know that when God gave the commandment of circumcision to Abraham, he told Abraham he would make of him a great nation. And that in Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's the covenant of Abraham when he enters into a blood covenant with God. The sign of this blood covenant was circumcision. What was the point of circumcision? The point was that Abraham gives his God his personal blood from the very source of his fatherhood. What Abraham is doing at God's command 
is pledging himself and his seed, the tribe of all those who will be descended from him, into this blood covenant with God. In other words, Abraham stands for his descendants. He's a representative. And this one man enters into this blood covenant with God on behalf of himself and all his descendants. Adam represented man before God, all mankind, and, his descent, and all his descendants before God. Now Abraham is representing all his descendants before God. Obviously, God couldn't exchange blood with Abraham. At that time, he didn't have any blood to exchange. But he accepts Abraham's blood sacrifice and rewards it by freeing all those in this covenant from original sin. So in the Old Testament, circumcision on the eighth day would free the baby from original sin. Circumcision foreshadows infant baptism. As that great saint and doctor of the church, the Venerable Bede, says, quote, You ought to know that circumcision under the law wrought the same healing against the wound of original sin as does baptism in this time of real grace, except that under circumcision they were not able to enter the gate of the heavenly kingdom, close quote, the Venerable Bede. Pope Innocent III makes the same point very clear, quote, Although original sin was remitted by the mystery of circumcision, and the danger of damnation was avoided, nevertheless, there was no arriving at the kingdom of heaven, which up to the death of Christ was barred to all. But through the sacrament of baptism, the guilt of one, made red by the blood of Christ, is remitted. And to the kingdom of heaven one also arrives, whose gate the blood of Christ has mercifully opened for his faithful. Close quote, Pope Innocent III. We might wonder why is circumcision of all things a fitting way to free men from original sin? That's easy. As we know, there's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Now Abraham is shedding blood from the source by which original sin is passed on to his descendants. As St. Thomas says, quote, original sin is contracted through the act of generation. Close quote. And since original sin comes from Adam, we all inherit original sin from our fathers. As St. Thomas says, quote, original sin is contracted from the father, not from the mother. Close quote. So now we can see why this is a fitting way to free men from original sin. We can see why this only pertained to men in the Old Testament. Girls could be forgiven of original sin by merely offering them up to the Lord. Part 3, Circumcision of Our Lord. All the commandments of the law are perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, eight days after his birth, St. Joseph and Our Lady took him to be circumcised. Now because Jesus was circumcised according to the law, he entered into that blood covenant between God and the seed of Abraham. Of course, our Lord did not have original sin. He couldn't have original sin, and not only because he's God. We contracted original sin from our Father, and he doesn't have a human father. So absolutely speaking, we can see that it isn't absolutely necessary that the Blessed Virgin be immaculate, since Christ did not have a human father, but God got to make his own mother, and there's no way he would have let a single fault ever stain her in any regard. Okay, so why did Christ get circumcised then? St. Thomas Aquinas says, among other things, that it prevented the Jews from ejecting Christ for being uncircumcised, and it showed his willingness to accept the burdens of the law in order to obtain our freedom, 
and it demonstrated Christ's membership among the children of Abraham. Now how does all this apply to us? Well, if you're following in your missile today, you'll see in the canon of the Mass, we talk about our patriarch, Abraham. Now for Croatian or Slovenian or Irish or Italian or French or English or German or Spanish or whatever else, unless we're actually of Jewish descent, how can Abraham possibly be our father? How is it that he became our father? Let's see. We've seen that baptism has taken the place of circumcision. We've seen that now baptism washes us free from original actual sin. We've seen by virtue of that baptism, we become united to Christ. We become members of his mystical body. We're placed in a state of grace, and so we share it. We have one and the same life, the divine life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, we know all that, so what? We already know we don't have to get circumcised, we just get baptized. What does this have to do with the Feast of Circumcision? This is a ceremony that only applies to the descendants of Abraham, and its power to forgive original sin ended 20 centuries ago. Well, God promised Abraham that in him all nations would be blessed, and the sign of that promise was circumcision. And now we're the recipients of that promise because we're baptized. How does that work? When we were baptized, we entered into the life of Christ. We became members of his body. And he was circumcised. And by his circumcision and our incorporation into him by holy baptism, we become heirs to the promises to Abraham. That's what St. Paul states in Galatians 3.27 and in Colossians 2.11. For as many of you as have been baptized have put on Christ in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision not made by hand, but in the circumcision of Christ. So on the eighth day, when our Lord is circumcised, he becomes an heir to the promises of Abraham. At that same time, he was our representative before God. And by our union with him, we all become not only adopted sons of God, but adopted sons of Abraham. We can truly call Abraham our father, our patriarch, our father in the faith. And by celebrating the great feast of circumcision, we're celebrating the fact that already, at only eight days of age, Christ our Lord underwent this suffering on our behalf, so that we could be heirs to the promises made to our father Abraham. Okay, let's review. We've seen that blood is life. We've seen that the sharing of blood is seen as a sharing of life, and that it establishes a family relationship, a blood covenant, that there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, and that blood is offered up as a substitute for life. We've seen that God promised to Abraham the promised land, all nations to be blessed in him. Abraham entered into a blood covenant with God, a family relationship with God, and the sign of that covenant was circumcision. By that circumcision on the eighth day, the descendants of Abraham became heirs to his promise, and that that shedding of blood frees them from original sin. We've seen that Christ our Lord became an heir to the promises by his circumcision. And now by our baptism, we become members of Christ, and therefore heirs to the promises made to Abraham. We become spiritual sons of Abraham, and by our baptism, we're also freed from original sin and become capable of entering the heavenly promised land. We enter into the life of Christ in the New Testament blood covenant by our baptism, more profoundly by our communion. And everyone who's blood covenanted to Jesus shares in his nature. We share in his virtues, 
his divine virtues if we're in right relationship to him, if we let that precious blood wash over us and wash away our sins and the wickedness and snares of the devil, if we let that flow through us and strengthen us in virtues and the supernatural virtues, these powers that are alone from God, faith, hope, charity, the life of grace, powers would make it possible for us to live the life of heaven. We share and we have one and the same life, divine life of Jesus. And because Jesus is circumcised according to the law, he entered into that blood covenant with the Father and Abraham. So by living through him and in his life, we become heirs to Abraham and his promises, the promises rejected by the Jews so long ago. We become members of Christ's body, the mystical body. He's the head, we're the members, sharing in the same supernatural life, enlivened by the same precious blood. Now we're all incorporated to that covenant that the Jews rejected. We're all members of one body whose head is Christ. And today we're celebrating the entrance into that covenant and by anticipation our adoption as sons of Abraham, as heirs to the promise given to Father Abraham. Today we're celebrating the fact that we Catholics are heirs of those promises God gave to Abraham. And that now, if a little baptized baby dies, he can enter that heavenly promised land since our Lord has gone ahead and opened the way with his precious blood. There's no salvation outside of Christ. He's the only ambassador that can lead us to that true promised land that was foreshadowed so long ago and those promises made to our father Abraham. During this Christmas season, during this new year, Let's make it a season and year of thanks. Let's turn to our little Lord Jesus and thank him for the wonderful gift of baptism by which we become heirs to the promises and by which we receive the holy faith, the faith without which it is impossible to please God. God bless you and have a holy new year.